The war between science and religion. Science versus God? You don't seem to need a God to create a universe. Scientists do need God. Science versus religion. What the opening statements commence. So that's kind of the way it's viewed in our culture today. When we asked this question on the, uh, the ballot, the question was asked, do we want to talk about science and faith? And there were two questions. One was, can they survive together? Can they actually coexist? Or maybe it's best that they exist apart, that maybe we stick to our lane, that science deals with science and theologians deal with faith and near the two shall meet. And it's best that way. They don't really play well together. In fact, a recent survey uh, Pew Research did was 60% of Americans believe that science and religion don't go well together. 60% believe they conflict. That what science teaches and what religion teaches are two separate things. But I think we find something different in the Bible. I think we'd find a different explanation of how these two sciences, how these two philosophies actually are one philosophy. Actually, the truth behind both is a single truth, a single person, and that be God. But oftentimes in our culture today, especially in our culture today, the discourse in, in the country, no matter if you're talking about religion and science or music or you name it, politics, right? We just keep getting further and further and further and further apart. And the ideas have become so polarized, so far from each other, that the discussion isn't a discussion. It's an argument, and it's heated, and it's hateful. And it just keeps pushing people to the outer limits. And I think my hypothesis this morning is that the thing that drives those people and drives us further apart from one another is fear. That's what causes us to fight, afraid. You know, the Christian afraid of science that says, we don't talk about those things in this house. You know, we don't, we don't do that because you start delving into science, you might find some things that might cause you to doubt your faith. And so we don't go there. We don't deal with that. And we're afraid science is going to prove maybe there isn't a God. Or maybe they've already done so and we just don't, we can't hear that. And then from the other side, the scientist looks and says, well, I'm afraid there is a God. There's some scientists, atheist scientists that admitted that. I'm afraid there is a God. And if there is a God, then it's going to have to change the way I live. And so I don't want there to be a God. So I'm afraid to admit that there's a God. And so I won't go there. And I'm afraid that if I find that there is, what am I going to do? I mean, what have I said all along? My reputation's at stake. And so I'm afraid I will be brought into disrepute. And so fear keeps us apart and causes us to argue and our speech is hate-filled. And the longer the argument goes on, the hotter the argument gets and the louder the argument gets. And it's fear that keeps us apart. But there's something I believe that can bring us together, which Scripture says brings us together, and that's Jesus. And it's the truth. We should not be afraid of the truth. In fact, Jesus said that's the reason he came, was to testify to the truth. One of these statements, one of these arguments happened when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate. Really disappointing when you think about it. Because he's standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate has Jesus, the Lord of the universe, standing in front of him. And Pilate asks him this question. He says, you're a king? And Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth 
listens to me. And Pilate retorted, he says, what is truth? And walks away. The very person that could have answered that question, if it were a real question, was standing right in front of him. And wouldn't you have liked for Pilate to have stayed and to heard Jesus' answer? He answered it earlier when he said, he is the truth. He is the life. He is the way. And we saw his way. The one who had all truth did not laud it over people, did not make people feel small, but made people feel big, made people feel loved because they were loved in his eyes. And so he treated them that way. He could have overwhelmed them with things they could have never understood and made them feel very small. But he spoke loving words to them. And he showed us a way forward, a way that we can speak to those that know things that we don't, but we don't have to be afraid because we know the truth. And Augustine said that truth, all truth, is God's truth. So no matter where you find it, in science, in the Bible, it's God's truth. If it's truth, it's from God. And so we need not be afraid of truth. In fact, I would say scientists, pure scientists would say that's the endeavor of science, is discover truth and discover how do we understand it. Einstein said this in one of his famous quotes. He wrote in 1940 in Nature magazine titled Science and Religion. He said, science can only be, create, can only be created by those who are thoroughly imbued with the aspiration toward truth and understanding. This source of feeling, however, springs from the sphere of religion. To this, there, to this there also belongs the faith in the possibility that the regulations valid for the world of existence are rational, that is, comprehensible to reason. I cannot conceive of a genuine man of science without that profound faith. The situation may be expressed by an image. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Science, at its purest form, seeks after the truth. Jesus said the sole purpose for which he came was to testify to the truth. We should not be afraid of the truth because all truth is, in fact, God's truth. Scientist Francis Collins, who was the, one of the founders of the Human Genome Project, who was responsible for mapping over the three billion letters of the human genome, says this, he says, I believe God did intend in giving us intelligence to give us the opportunity to investigate and appreciate the wonders of his creation. He's not threatened by our scientific adventures. Francis Collins looks at what God reveals about himself in the scriptures and says, well, if this is true about God, I'm sure he's not afraid about what people are going to find. In fact, I would think he wants us to find those things that we don't know about him. So if God's not afraid of it, why should we be afraid of what science finds? In fact, we should be eager to learn more about God. And if science can help us do that, I say yes. So we can coexist with science. But I think the thing we have to understand, and I think a scientist said it very well, he said it this way. Richard Feynman said, outside of his or her field, a scientist is just as dumb as the next guy. If you're a scientist, your field is science. And one of the criticisms of the late Stephen Hawking by one of his friends was, he said, Stephen is not very well versed in theology or philosophy. 
He knows a lot about science, but he knows very little about these things, but yet it doesn't keep him from talking about these things. And Richard Feynman would say to him, stick to your lane. And I think the same thing can be said to the theologian. Stick to your lane. It doesn't mean you can't come to understand the truth of other disciplines. But it's when you start to venture into other lanes, other things that you're not expert in, and start to speak into those things that you show yourself for who you truly are. I think the proverb says, a fool seems wise until he speaks. St. Augustine gave us this warning about doing the very thing that Feynman talks about. He says, usually, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens. And this knowledge he holds to as being certain from reason and experience. Now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for a non-believer to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance at a Christian and laugh and laugh it to scorn. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, how are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven when they think their pages are full of falsehoods and on facts which they themselves have learned from experience and in the light of reason? St. Augustine's telling us back in the third century, we need to stay in our lane. Because when we get outside of that lane and start saying things that we know nothing about, we bring the Bible into disrepute. It will cause people of science when we start spouting off things that we know nothing about and calling their science voodoo science and, and saying that's not what the Bible says. He says when we do such things, we just cut off their ears. And why would they want to listen to us? Why would they want to hear anything that we have to say? You know, there's an example of that in history. You know, for most of man's history, this is the way man saw the universe. The earth at the center. And everything else revolved around it. Science and religion believed this was the state of the universe. You could call them fixed earthers. That was the view. The earth was center and it didn't move. Everything else moved around it. The Aristotelian view was that. And science held that view. About the third century AD, an astronomer looked up and said, maybe not. Maybe the sun is the center and everything else is moving. Well, then it was in the 16th century, this guy named Copernicus. And you know he's a big deal when all you have to say is his one name, right? Copernicus or Galileo, or Jesus, or Elvis, and you know they're a pretty big deal. Yeah, nobody's ever going to say, Diekman. <laughs> right, except my sixth grade principal who always sent me to his office, you know. Diekman, to my office. But Copernicus said, no, the sun is the center of the universe. And the earth is moving. And he was labeled a heretic because he was a believer. And then in the 17th century, Galileo come along with his telescope and looked up and said, I see it, everything moving. I see us moving. 
And the theologian said, that can't be. That's heresy. Both men, Christian, both men did not believe what they saw to be evidence that God didn't exist. What they saw was evidence that God did exist. But the theologian looked at that and said, no, can't be. The earth is fixed. Why did they think that? Because this is what Scripture says. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He has set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. And from Ecclesiastes, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. How do you make sense of God's word if you say the earth moves? It brings the word into disrepute. And we will never have that. How many of you are fixed earthers today? No one? John Lennox in his book uses this argument to give us some warning about how we hold to things. Because very smart people, I thank God, very smart people have come along and understood this better. Not so much like some of the simple theologians who thought they knew better and said, you know what, this all makes sense. As we've learned more about the universe, we understand that it's not this picture. It's not this literalistic picture of the earth sitting on literal foundations, not moving. But that would be your position if you held it. But they've come along and said, no, 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 we've learned that the sun is the center of the universe. It's a heliocentric universe. And the earth not only rotates on its axis, but it actually orbits around the sun along with the other planets of the universe. And what we've learned is that the earth and these other planets and the universe is fine-tuned. There's order. Very fine-tuning. And if the earth moved just a degree or so less outside of that orbit, tilted a little bit different on its axis a little bit closer to the sun, a little bit further away from the sun, we would not be here. And so in a very real way, the earth is fixed on its foundation, and it doesn't move from that orbit. For if it did, we wouldn't be here. And so some very wise people said, yeah, that makes sense. And it makes sense that the person writing this, as they look up into the sky, would say, it appears everything moves, because guess what? If, it were, if the earth were moving, wouldn't I feel a wind constantly in my face? And if I threw a rock up in the air, wouldn't it land behind me rather than straight down? But we've learned how that works through gravity. And what happens is science converges with Scripture. We don't see a divergence. We see a convergence. And it's science that helped us see that. Science helped us see that it wasn't the Scripture that was wrong, it was our view of Scripture that was wrong. And so the warning is, be careful about how tightly you hold to things that you're just not quite sure about. Things that within the church we disagree about, be careful. But see, it also goes the other way around. Theologians do know some things that science is just now discovering. See, for most of mankind's existence, the thought was the universe has always existed, that it was eternal, and it always has been and always will be. In college, I took this class called The Cosmos. It was based on Carl Sagan's book and his teachings, and one of his famous quotes is that the cosmos is all there is 
or was or ever will be. The cosmos is eternal. But the Bible says there was a beginning. Thomas Aquinas wrestled with that. He was a man of science, but he was also a man of faith. And he believed in the Aristotelian view that, that the universe was eternal, but that conflicted with the book. And so he just sort of said, well, I'll live with the conflict. But then Albert Einstein comes along in 1920, has his theory of relativity, and in doing the calculations, he comes to understand that based upon his calculations, based upon his theory, the universe is expanding. And he was shocked because that, he didn't expect that. And he checked his work and he checked his work and sure enough, the universe is expanding and he couldn't believe it. In fact, he couldn't live with it. So he introduced an outside variable into his calculation to fit with his expectation of what he would find. Because he'd always thought the universe was fixed, that it wasn't expanding, that it was constant. But yet his calculation tells him that it's moving. So he introduces an outside variable and sort of fudges his own equation. And then about 1930, Hubble, Dr. Hubble, you guys familiar with him, the Hubble telescope, you know, they're going up, was looking into the night sky at an observatory out in California. And as he looked into the universe, he sees evidence that the universe is expanding. He sees actual evidence, waveform evidence in the universe, and he postulates, he says, if that's true, which is what Einstein knew, if that's true, then there was a beginning that the universe wasn't eternal, that at some point in the distant past, there was nothing. Now there's something, and it's expanding. And in fact, since Hubble discovered that, Einstein goes to the West Coast, and he looks up into the same sky with the same telescope as Hubble, and this is what Einstein says, I now see the necessity of a beginning. And he said him introducing that variable into his equation was the worst decision of his life. But now he sees evidence that there's a beginning. And science starts looking, trying to understand more. 2012, the late Stephen Hawking said this, all the evidence seems to indicate that the universe has not existed forever, but that it had a beginning. This is probably the most remarkable discovery of modern science. And the scientist has learned what the theologian has said all along, that there was a beginning. Again, science and faith converge. We should not be afraid of the truth, because all truth is God's truth. And God testifies to his existence, not just in his word, but in the universe. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. David says what Paul said in Romans, that the universe testifies to the existence of God. Why would we not be surprised that that's what science discovers? That there's order in the universe, that there's intelligence behind it. Why would we be surprised that God would speak 
when he says that he does? Why would we be afraid of what science would find? We should be excited about what scientists will find because they'll find God there if they're honest. They'll find intelligence there if they're honest. But then David goes on to say something else. This revelation of God in the universe in theology we call a general revelation. That every human being is witness to that. Every human being, the universe testifies to that God exists. But then there's a special revelation that God gives us in his word. And David goes on to say in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. See, God's special revelation is found here. He speaks to us in his word. The writer of Hebrews says he spoke through the prophets, and in these days he speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. And John tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word of God, the special revelation, not just about that there is a God, but who this God is and what he's been doing from the time that he created time till now and what he will do in the future and what he has done for mankind and what all of it means is found in the special revelation of his word. And so God speaks to his creation through his creation and through his word because God is the author of it all. And therefore, we should not be afraid. We should encourage the scientist to keep exploring. We should encourage very smart people to seek after the truth. We shouldn't be afraid of that. As Christians, we have an opportunity to seek after his truth, those of us that aren't scientifically inclined. We are called, all of us, to be students of this word, to be students of this book, not all of us are called to be students of the science book, but all of us are called to be students of this book. And the better we know this book, the better we can point to the truth that science discovers, the better we can understand the truth that science discovers. But yet God speaks through his universe, but not all scientists come to that knowledge. Because some come like Albert Einstein with this belief already, this fear that maybe there is a God or this belief that there never is one. And they don't want to believe what it is they see, and so they postulate different things. And it's out of fear. Sometimes it's out of fear. Sometimes it's out of the way that we've talked about it. Sometimes we have brought science, or we've brought faith into disrepute. The way we enter into this discussion. We don't make it a conversation, we make a confrontation. And we talk about things that we don't know about, and we talk about them hatefully, and we talk about them disrespectfully, and we talk about them ignorantly. And there's no wonder why some scientists ignore what we have to say. Paul tells us the way forward. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul tells us this is how the way we are to speak. He says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone, even the scientists. One of my favorite channels on cable TV is the Food Network. And I love watching cooking shows and learning more about cooking shows because, in a way, it's scientific. And one of the major complaints from all the celebrity chefs to all the amateur chefs, you didn't season that well. And that's what Paul's saying to us. When you talk about your faith to people, you need to season it well. Because when you don't, it's not very palatable. 
Who'd, wanna, who'd want anything to do with it? We need to be gracious and understand that the person that we're talking to, regardless of what they believe, is a creation of the living God. If we believe what the Bible says, that we were created in his image, that all of us were created in his image, then we should treat everyone with that respect. We should treat everyone with that grace because that's exactly how God has treated us, gracefully. Not giving us what we deserve. Not standing at a distance, pointing his finger, calling us ignorant or foolish or faithless or lost, but loved. Paul says it's with love that we can answer everyone. We don't have to know all the answers. We just have to know the one and live our life like him and speak to one another with love. And we close the distance. We keep playing this game of, of dividing people. We need to bring people together, and the way we do that is with love. And we can do that in the area of science and faith. We can testify to the love of Jesus Christ. We do so with our lives, and we speak it. And so we need to be careful how we speak to one another. And we need to do so graciously, seasoned with salt. And you may ask, well, how much salt? Figure it out. That's what cooking's about. Put a little salt, too much, a little less. That's pretty good. But season your words. Understand that they, have a, they can make a difference. Use them wisely. Paul is a great example of that. The Apostle Paul one day was in Athens, and he was walking around the city, and he saw all of these idols. And he saw one idol in this city that worshipped idols, and it was titled to an unknown god. And Paul's like, I have an idea. So he walks into the Areopagus where all the wise men, all the philosophers of the day were sitting, and he stood up and he said, Heathens, you idol worshipers, God hates idol worshipers. You know, your Bible, he doesn't say that. He stands up in the middle of the Areopagus, and he says this to them. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. I even see that you have an idol to an unknown God. Let me tell you about him, for I know him. His name is Jesus. And this God that you are worshiping is real, and I know him, and I can tell you about him. In fact, your philosophers and your poets have written about him. And they said, for in him we live and move and have our being. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now these words were not originally penned thinking of God, of the Bible. The philosophers and the poets that wrote these were talking about Zeus. When they said these words, they were speaking about Zeus. But yet here are these Greek philosophers' words in our Bible. What are they doing in our Bible? Remember what Augustine said? All truth is God's truth. Paul knew that. Paul knew the person they were talking about was Jesus. They just didn't know it. See, they knew the truth, that there was this intelligence, there was this person behind it, and in him we live and move and we have our being. And we are his offspring. 
And Paul says, that's Jesus. That's the God of the Bible. And these wise men said, we want to know more. (laughs) Can you tell us more? Can you come back and talk to us again? And Paul's like, absolutely. But some of them laughed and scoffed at him and sent him away. See, we can take a page out of Paul's book and speak with love, seasoned words, knowing we don't have to have all the answers. We just have to come with the love of Jesus Christ. And we trust that he will do those things. And we know that some people will ridicule us for speaking the truth. But we don't have to be afraid of the truth because God is truth. We just have to know this book. We have to be wise about how we handle this book. And in areas where we disagree, areas where the old theologians for hundreds of years have disagreed about things and it's not really clear, there are a lot of things in this book that are very clear. But there are some things that just aren't so clear. Like, is it fixed or not fixed? Well, we come to find out that it isn't. One of my favorite scientists and philosophers, John Lennox, professor of mathematics at Oxford, says this, since God is the author both of his word, the Bible, and the universe, there must ultimately be harmony between correct interpretation of the biblical text, the biblical data, and the correct interpretation of the scientific data. You know, in his book, Seven Days to Divide the World, he used that same argument before about the fixed earthers to describe our current predicament as we, within the church, argue about the age of the earth. And we have these two polarized opposites, young earth, old earth, warring against one another, and he's saying, maybe we need to be a little bit wiser about how we handle this and exactly what it is the Bible says. Maybe it's not what the Bible says, it's maybe what we think about what the Bible says. And so his book is actually on this, along with some others that I'd encourage you to read if you want to know more. On the back, there's some resources. And in his book, he says, what does the text have to say? Does the text pin us down into one view or the other? I encourage you to read it to see what he says, but there's wisdom there. There's wisdom for us as we enter into the debate of faith and science. We don't have to have all the answers, but we do and are commanded to go forth with the love of Jesus Christ, loving one another as he's loved us. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and our mind. We can use our mind. We don't have to check our mind at the door. Christianity is not a faith devoid of evidence because the universe is evidence that God exists. The order in the universe, the order in the smallest of things testifies to the fact that God exists. And we get to use our mind to discover it. Why would we discourage that? We should encourage our children of faith to enter scientific fields, but we need to equip them with the truth. We can't just send them off as lambs to slaughter, but we need to equip them. And so we need to be students of this word, but we also need to be students of Science, not be afraid to encounter. There are some brilliant minds out there, scientists, Christian scientists, like Francis Collins, like John Lennox, that can inform our conversation and turn it from a confrontation to a conversation. We shouldn't be afraid of the truth. We testify to scientists, to politicians, food lovers, to music lovers of different tastes, people of all different persuasions with the love of Jesus, that our words should be seasoned with salt. 
We should speak from what we know and not what we don't know. So as a body of believers, science and faith are not at war. It's we that are at war. And as Christians, we're called to enter into that conflict with a different way. Not the way of the world, but with the way of Jesus Christ. Speaking the truth in love. With our words seasoned with salt. I pray that you'll continue that investigation. That you would become children of this word. Students of this word. Scholars in this word. We are all theologians. We have all been called to be theologians. Not all of us have been called to be scientists. But we give thanks for the scientists. And we ask God that all of them would come to faith and that he would use us to do that. I pray that for Jesus' sake, for every one of you. Amen.